Hello and welcome to another episode of Spotlight, the Star Trek podcast from a non-Trekkie perspective. I'm joined by my usual co-host, Matt. Hello, Liam. And Paul. Hello, everybody. Paul, put down your wine. (laughs) (laughs) It's a Monday, sir. It's Transformers the movie. That's how you start the week. (laughs) (laughs) And we are joined by a very special guest, Mr. Tim Coleman. How are you, sir? I'm all right, buddy. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you. Not too bad at all. Thank you so much for joining us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Tim, for those who don't know, can you tell us who are you and what you do? Yeah, no worries. So I am a freelance uh, film journalist. I write for, among other places, Total Film Magazine. Also a screenwriter and an academic as well. So film is a big passion of mine and I'm one of those annoying people who are lucky enough to kind of get to work a little bit in that sector. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an incredible thing to do, man. I mean... How long have you been working for Total Film? Oh, it's probably about four years, I want to say. Four years as a as a freelancer. So yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a it's a joy to be honest. Yeah, how did you get into it into into Total Film in the first place? Because I think probably quite a lot of people would be interested to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a bit probably an unconventional route in. Um, I ended up uh, I've been like a long term reader of the magazine, and I think I first started reading them from around about issue three back in like 97 and I'd kind of written in as just like a reader and had a, had a, a few letters published and kind of um, over the course of like maybe about 18 months they kind of published something like I don't know maybe about nine of my letters and so I ended up kind of just badgering one of their editors and being like you know you guys are publishing my my letters how about you know you guys let me write for you a little bit and eventually they kind of capitulated to my incessant knocking on their door and um and uh yeah kind of they've been stuck with me ever since so i mean were these threatening letters tim <laughs> i say i say, I say letters Tim. i mean i'm not i'm not saying threats i i consider them promises you know like you know, <laughs> if i don't you know yeah, just, I mean, just general intimidation you know I mean, I've got to say, I've been getting total films since issue 20, and they've never offered me a fucking job, you know? <laughs> That's it. I mean, all you just need is, like, you know, a particular mask just to sit outside people's houses at four in the morning, you know? It's, it's easy, easy, easy. See, Liam, you just didn't do that research on where they live. That's, that's yeah, yeah, that was my problem. That's how I made a mistake. And you see, you're an academic as well, because you, you lecture on film, don't you? So I do lecture, um, but not always and not particularly on film i'm a social work academic so i kind of lecture on like uh sociological perspectives on working with vulnerable people that kind of stuff i tend to annoy my students by bringing in filmic references uh all the time you know so um, (laughs) yeah because i think there's like a big crossover if you're interested in genre stuff like science fiction fantasy horror which is kind of like my wheelhouse um there's a lot of crossover with you know the kind of same stuff that that we do direct work in so yeah i tend to bring a lot of those kind of examples into my teaching yeah, I mean, I think that's what we all do. Is that anyone, any of us who are hardcore film fans, we tend to bring anything like back to film, don't we? At some point, I think we're all guilty of that. Hundred percent. It's just my <laughs> my paradigm for understanding the world. You know, it's like I'm like, oh yeah, this is a bit like that bit in in that thing. You know, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> and today we're doing uh, an episode of Spotlight at the Movies, which is the thread of our podcast where we talk about a film featuring a member of Star Trek alumni, either in front or behind the camera. And say you have chosen, Tim, to talk about the Transformers, the movie. Why did you pick this film? 
I picked this film because it is possibly the greatest animated film ever made. Hold on tight. The most incredible rock and roll adventure ever is here. Feed him to the shark gun. Starring Judd Nelson as Hot Rod. Leonard Nimoy as Galvatron. And Orson Welles. I Beyond good, beyond evil, beyond your wildest imagination. Transformers, the movie. <laughs> I mean, it's a film that I've loved deeply since I was a kid. It came out in 86, so I saw it probably 87, 88. My dad brought home, like, a bootlegged Betamax tape. Yeah, um, the Betamax of... in the late 80s, you're a holdout. That... Oh, that's it, man, that's it. But yeah, yeah, it just kind of made a big impact on me, and, and for reasons we're going to get into, I, th- I still think it's an incredible piece of work in terms of some of the, the weightier stuff uh, that it kind of wrestles with. We kind of jokingly were talking about like oh yeah like you know film is a way of like understanding particular issues in life but actually i think for a film which essentially was made to sell toys is so dark and so arresting and so full-throated i think it's it's really stands the test of time and and of course from a star uh, trek perspective you've got uh mr leonard nimoy in it as a key antagonist yeah, that's right. So the key Star Trek connection is the fact that we have Leonard Nimoy, Spock himself, playing Galvatron, who is basically Megatron reborn. And funnily enough, actually, one of the other smaller uh, Star Trek connections in this is Mr. Frank Welker, who keeps popping up mm. whenever we do an animated film because he <laughs> is highly It's against the law prolific. for him not to be in one. Yeah, basically, when it comes to <laughs> animated films. And... He plays Megatron, and basically mm-hmm. when Megatron dies and is reborn as Galvatron, that's when Leonard Nimoy takes over. But of course, when it came to season three of Transformers, because this film is set between season two and season three of the original Transformers animated series, Leonard Nimoy obviously was like too expensive to provide the voice of Galvatron in season three. My so work here is old- done. Exactly. So good old Frank Welker <laughs> took over as Galvatron after that. And it's, it's weird because the, this, the crossing of the streams between Nimoy and Welker keeps happening because, of course, he provided some of Spock's screams in Star Trek III, The Search of Spock. So this is another time mm. when they both played the same role, essentially. So only one man who would scream for me. Yes, yeah. So before <laughs> get me we get Frank. into the There's film one other connection. Proper, oh, go on. Orson Welles. Who of voiced the teaser trailer for Star Trek: yes. The Motion Picture? The human adventure is just beginning. William Shatner, take us out. Is Captain James T. Kirk. Leonard Nimoy, 
is Mr. Spock. DeForest Kelly is Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy. James Doohan is Lieutenant Commander Montgomery Scott. George Takei is Lieutenant Commander Sulu. Major Barrett is Dr. Christine Chappell. Walter Koenig is Lieutenant Pavel Chekhov. Michelle Nichols is Lieutenant Commander Uhura. Stephen Collins is Commander Willard Decker. Persis Kambata is Lieutenant Ilya. And can I offer a fourth connection as well? That you have uh, Robert Carmel, who plays Cyclonus and the Quintesson leader. Yes, Harry uh, Mudd. Harry Mudd in the original series. Oh, wow. Amazing. Amazing. So we've actually got, yeah, quite a few little connections. But before we get to the actual film itself, Tim, we always ask our guests for their Star Trek credentials. Now, what we mean by sure. this is... What Star Trek have you seen? What haven't you seen? What was your first experience with Trek? If it's absolutely nothing, that's fine as well. But we're always interested to hear what exposure you've had to it. So I think this is probably the point where I embarrass myself slightly and uh, say um, I've got some quite sizable gaps in my Star Trek knowledge. So I I kind of... As do we all. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of lot of shows, right? Um, but yeah, I grew up a little bit with the Next Generation, um, which I got a feeling was it on BBC Two in like the nineties. Yeah. yeah, I feel like I, I feel like I watched a lot of BBC Two in like late afternoon, early evening, and then caught I think all of the Next Generation films at the pictures. Saw some of the original cast films, but like you know, to my to my shame, I have not seen Wrath of Khan, which I know is the big one that everyone says is is the the high point and probably haven't seen much of the original tv series either i picked up a little bit of ds9 quite a bit of voyager but yeah yeah i, I could in no way talk about myself as an authority on star trek unfortunately yeah you definitely got to get yourself down to one of the 70 millimeter engagements of rafa khan at the prince charles once everything has reopened again because they absolutely. by all accounts are something special absolutely i feel i mean i feel you guys should be the people to ask do i need to see the original motion picture before wrath of khan because i yes. hear that the original yeah? <laughs> stupid no. question <laughs> Because <laughs> I've, I've heard it's not amazing, but Wrath of Khan is like you know is 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 amazing. So I, yeah, I'm kind of like I know I should be doing them in order, but I'm kind of like oh, the first one supposedly not great. So <laughs> uh, so this is yeah, as I say, the Transformers, the movie, 1986, written by Ron Friedman. Only feature credit prior to this was a film called Record City. It is time to get down because this is going. Kong with you along and it is showtime! cinematic supermarket of song with a lot of strange folks to help you along home records disco techers detectives defectives gropies groupies chicks chicklets jive talkers street walkers 
And who could forget the customers? <gasps> oh! Record City, baby! Mr. Feel good. Mr. Feel call on me. Okay, uh, but no kinky stuff. What are you talking about? Sex. Come again? I want to make love to you. Oh, thank you very much. You're very kind. He did also write the script for G.I. Joe, the movie. Unfortunately, mm. that went straight to video thanks to the poor box office of Transformers. Before this, he was mostly doing kind of sitcom writing and stuff and then moved into animation, but weirdly never wrote for the Transformers TV show. And directed by Nelson Shin. Uh, he only has one other theatrically released feature that he directed after this, which is a thing called Empress Chung in 2005, uh, which is another animation, which it was a real passion project of his, apparently, and took him years to get to screen. And he never directed any of the Transformers series, but he was one of the producers. So, yeah, kind of uh, slightly odd choices in a way, but they're the guys who are writing and directing uh, this. Had a budget of five. 0.6 million and it did make its budget back uh, domestically it's one of those ones where I haven't got the worldwide figures for it but it was not a box office success unfortunately I mean it's, it's a weird one really with it kind of not being a box office smash because Transformers were definitely huge in the 80s I mean what's our own history with this franchise um matt were you getting the transformers toys as a kid you know what i think i might have been just after the hype for this for, for toys and things when i was a kid because i was definitely i had ghostbusters and teenage mutant ninja turtle figures they were the kind of my two franchises that i had a lot of toys for and transformers i think even though they were obviously perfect to be made as toys you know transforming little figures i don't think i don't remember ever like sitting down and you know, having them, I have, I have since got a Starscream somewhere that does turn into a jet very well. Um, Amazing. So, so really, I think it was a case of around the um, the hype for Michael Bay's first film coming out when we all started getting into or getting back into the show a bit, where we started watching uh, a few of the old episodes and stuff, and uh, getting kind of hyped as that movie was coming out. But like, I don't think I'd really seen much of the the show, and I don't think I'd even seen this film before last night. In my head, I thought I had at least seen this, but I think. I think I've just got maybe like the first 20 minutes engraved into my mind through pop culture osmosis as it were but the rest of it I had no memory of so I was like I can't say I have actually seen this before so it's been uh, interesting okay. to go back and like check it out and because we're watching this of course I had no idea where it fit into the the canon of the show I assumed because of the amount of death left right and center that it was the finale to the series so finding out that it's kind of midway between is very interesting uh, to see how it would shape up again but yeah I just assumed this was a case of they knew it was ending and they were just like right just kill everybody <laughs> <laughs> yeah you would assume that i mean with me my transformers kind of history is i did actually have a few transformers toys as a kid i can't remember what the Transformers was called but it was one it was like a, a, tim you might know so shout out if you remember what this one is but it was like a little truck and you pressed a button on top and two Optimus like, Prime. Turrets. what's that <laughs> yeah, do you actually truck. know no, I just said Optimus Prime because it's like the only one I really know. Truck, and it's a truck. So. Okay, well, no, it was not Optimus Prime. I fucking wish I had Optimus Prime. In fact, I remember I did have one other Transformers toy, which was like one I picked up at a car boot sale, which was some kind of like giant Transformer yeah. that was a mix of like, it was more like a fucking Megazord or something. Like, yeah, it was really, yeah, that was really good. But I wanted Transformers toys, but you know, they, they were pretty expensive and stuff, couldn't really 
afford them, but they were they were pretty cool fucking toys, man. But the thing is, Transformers the show wasn't on terrestrial TV, or if it was, it was only like you know occasionally on there. I think it might have been part of like the Timmy Mallet show at some point or something <laughs> like that. But I think it was mm. mostly on like satellite TV. So I didn't really see the show. It was like more of a fable thing that I wanted to see. But I did have the like Ladybird picture storybook version of this film, which I read mm. countless times back as a kid. Uh, I didn't actually see the actual film for years and years until <laughs> like uh, in my teens or something. Paul, I, I'm getting the impression that you you were not a Transformers kid. I don't remember it at all. I think my childhood, I remember the first like uh, show for older boys or older girls that was sort of in my sort of awareness, even though it wasn't my thing, was Master Universe and He-Man. And the Masters of the Universe. I am Adam. Prince of Eternia and defender of the secrets of Castle Grayskull. This is Cringer, my fearless friend. Fabulous secret powers were revealed to me the day I held aloft my magic sword and said, By the power of Grayskull! And then it went into turtle mode. The next was those three fads that I remember very early on, but I was like Matt, just Ghostbusters, Star Wars. I was just basically getting all those toys from like the car boot sales. My only way I've kind of ever come across Transformers again was uh, I wasn't going to go see it like at the cinema, but my my friend from uni, Liam Farnham, not you, different person. Yeah, it wasn't uh, me. It wasn't you, but we had this kind of like film night, just watching movies ago, which had a God Bless America season. And we just basically <laughs> had films that we just like were tub thumping American patriotic epic action movies that we just loved. And there was like Crimson Tide, uh, Pearl Harbor, Director's Cut, Air Force One. And uh, and then, you know, I was, he went to see Transformers and we said like, yeah, I think you'll really like this in a total way. This has taken all our boxes. It's got a lot of hardware you know, American military hardware in this film, a lot of <laughs> stuff going on, you're going to like it. So on his recommendation, I went to see it. And that was it. I saw that movie, <laughs> and that was liked the end it. of that story. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. I, I liked that film, and I, I've never helped, felt any compunction to go see a sequel. Okay, well, I think we'll probably get into the bayhem of it all a bit later. But for now, Tim, I mean, obviously, it goes without saying that I'm assuming you were a, a, a massive fan of this as a kid if your dad was breaking the law to provide you with Transformers the movie on Betamax. You know, man, it, it was the 80s. It was a different time. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, funnily enough, though, um, I don't think I was that into the show. And I guess it's probably worth saying that Transformers was a toy line first rather than a, a show. Like when um, Hasbro were kind of launching Transformers in, in 83, 84, they were doing it with this you know, I guess you could say cynically, um, launching the toys, but supported by the uh, animated show and by uh, the comics which Marvel were releasing all at the same time. So it's very much 
hard capitalism, hard commercial drive. Um, and yeah, I, I probably saw, like you mentioned Timmy Mallet, I probably saw some of those. I remember being into the real Ghostbusters and He-Man and GoBots, which is kind of like a, I think that was released by Tonka. It's kind of like a Transformer-esque Go-Bots. universe. Do you remember GoBots? No. Mm. What is that? I just I mean, it's basically a rip-off, I'm assuming. It feels like it's a Transformers ripoff, but I think it came out at almost the same time. So it might have been, yeah, that there was just something in the wind that Hasbro were releasing Transformers and Tonka kind of got, you know, I think, yeah, I could quickly Google it, but like, I think it was Tonka that did GoBots. And um, yeah, Perhaps it's, it's like very, the very similar. Man. Ghostbusters that had the kind of title first, and then they had to rename the other show, the real Ghostbusters. Well, that, it could be that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was Tonka, yeah. And it came out 83 to 87, so very synchronously with um, Hasbro's Transformers. But yeah, so for me, like my main entry point was was the movie. And um, I've not really gone back to the TV show because for me, it, it you know, it is all about the film rather than the universe per se. Do you think that part of that is to do with the fact that obviously the film is going to be a little more hardcore than the TV series? So, like, you think if you went back to the actual show, you'd be kind of disappointed in comparison? Maybe. I mean, I, I think there's something relentless in the pacing of the film. And um, the other film I kind of remember from this time that I still love today is uh, Return of the Jedi, which, which was like, you know, perhaps a, a more mainstream or, or obvious choice. They both feel and one of them is like the epic conclusion to this huge space saga um and you guys mentioned it feels like transformers is the final chapter even though it kind of comes bang in the middle of the four seasons mm. and again that was kind of cynically driven because they wanted to kill off a bunch of the characters so they could release new toys although however cynical those motivations were the effect is it is this absolutely cataclysmic well i think in the um the uh one of the commentaries is out there by a guy called chris mcfeely who's like a transformers aficionado he talks it about um, the film as being um, an unrelenting death fest, which is probably a fairly good, uh, fairly good summary. Yes, if you kind of come into it cold, and you, you know you don't really have much context. It's just like you're kind of dropped right into the middle of this apocalyptic battle. And yeah, so even without the kind of contextual stuff from the TV show, it's it's like a really. Um, a really arresting film. Yeah, it does feel like you're immediately playing catch-up and you get the sense that it's made for the fans of the show because it feels like the first 20 minutes especially are like the finale of something else and it feels like there's yeah. a lot in this movie that is actually, like you're saying, about not maybe going back to see the show now. It feels like the movie is a pretty good encapsulation of everything you might want to see or have known about the Transformers. Like You get some good prime action, you get Starscream being a traitorous little bitch, uh, you get all these things that you go, oh, I kind of know this about the series, and it's all in this film. So it does feel like a good thing Absolutely. to watch if you were just going to do the one thing. Right, well, set uh, 20 years later, like, was there human yeah. characters in the first two seasons? Yeah, so, yeah, there was, yeah. Yeah, because you get in the movie, you get Spike, who's um, the dad in his 30s or 40s, and he's a teenager in the first two seasons. So you're right, it's set, there's a 20-year gap. Uh, from season two and it leaps forward to the distant future of 2005 <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes yeah, so although like it does kind of drop you into the middle of it it must have been quite quite something for fans of the tv show to go to the pictures and be like oh hello we've kind of jumped massively into the future and so although you know some of the characters the the particulars of the plot have definitely moved forward so you know a couple of decades from when you were lost with those characters 
it kind of feels like they're doing one of those stories they do in comics all the time, where it's like the final story of this yeah. super yeah. world, where suddenly it's in the apocalyptic future or something like that. So yeah, let's get into this, because like you say, there is literally about one line of exposition at the beginning to try and help people. But apart from that, it is just kind of mm. dive right in. I mean, is it worth saying there are two different openings to it, depending on what cut you've watched as well? So I think uh, it probably is, yeah, because which, yeah, so which one did you, Matt, did we all get this off Cinema Paradiso? No, my housemate had a DVD. Funny enough, my housemate, she's not that big into films, and she's got about four DVDs, and one of them was this. (laughs) And I was like, yes! (laughs) Amazing. She's clearly a woman of incredible taste. Yeah, I didn't have a call. We both got the Blu-ray off Cinema Paradiso, didn't we, Paul? Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. So I had like a, yeah, Star Wars text crawl. So... So there's like the US version, uh, which was released theatrically, which has no crawl and no voiceover. But you get like the Superman-esque credits flying in saying, you know, Eric Idle's playing Gar and, mm. um, you know, John Nelson's playing Hot Rod. But then the UK version, you get like the Star Wars crawl and then the voiceover, which gives you a bit of context. And same thing at the other end, like at the, um, the American cut ends with no closing duration, while the uh, UK cut ends with the voiceover again, kind of wrapping things up in a little bow for people, so... Yeah, I didn't get any cruel, and my one had swearing in it, and I know that's different in some parts. Yeah, the, the American version put swearing in, because there's a bit where Unicron is eating Moonbase 2, and uh, they put that in there specifically so that it would get a higher rating, um, and then they could play it at later showings to make a bit more make a bit more cash. So yeah, that, I like, heard that. It's so weird, isn't it? Because now... It's quite often the other way around where people are trying to get like a lower rating. When it happened in the film and suddenly there was a swear, I was like, what the fuck? Like, yeah, this is a kid's cartoon, <laughs> yeah. like, isn't it? Like, you know, what's going on? Like, and it's just like yes. everyone just swore in 80s movies, no matter what, you know? <laughs> no, definitely. It kind of, particularly if you've only ever seen the UK cut, it's quite like, hang on a second. Like, you know, when it just yeah, 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 yeah. drops it in there. Look, it isn't even dented. Oh shit, what are we gonna do now? Straight away, I've gotta say, I was really impressed that this did have like a big cinematic feel to me, like at the beginning of the opening kind of sequence. It looks kind of more like anime, like something like Akira-esque at the beginning, rather than kind of Saturday morning kids cartoon. And it's a pretty fucking dark planet ending opening that goes on. Yeah, I mean, so the opening sequence has Unicron, who is this planet-sized transformer in the shape of a planet to begin with. And as he approaches this uh, heavily populated planet, the camera, um, I mean, I know it's animated, we can talk about the the camera, I guess, still, though, um, makes pains to show us it's a civilian planet and it shows women and children. And then he basically, Unicron just comes in and starts devouring it and, like, basically absorbing the planet into his into his mouth and chewing it up and getting energised from it. In the original script, it was actually even more horrific. The way he was would digest the planet would be by emitting this kind of acidic fog. And so Kranix, who's one of the characters that we encounter later on, who escapes from that planet at the beginning. In the original script, he turns and sees his mate, Arbulus. And um, Arbulus is getting, like, dissolved by this fog. Um, you know, so for like again, for a kid's film, it's, it puts its stall out really early because it essentially ends with an act of mass genocide. And 
and just says, yeah. hey kids, this is the universe, it's cold and heartless and we'll eat you whole. I hope you're enjoying your popcorn. It's it's a really, really brutal opening. Yeah, we're kind of used to kids' films like saving a big death for like the end when you're expecting it and kids can handle it. But here, yeah, from the very beginning, just like whole planet, gone. Get used to it, kids. It's come, there's more coming. As I say, we mentioned the Star Wars crawl. And of course, like, yeah, Star Wars, Alderaan is destroyed. But there's no cut to... Alderaan saying, hey, look at the kids, look at the parents. Oh. Look, it's just like, you know, you well, see the Not planet. yet, Tim. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a... But yeah. George gets his hands on it again. <laughs> well, that's it. We'll wait for the super, super edition. Um, so yeah, definitely I feel like mm. it's it's got a quite a brutalist edge right from the off. I did immediately make, raise the question of like, are there people building children Transformers? <laughs> or are they going to grow up big and strong? <laughs> Get extra power. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, they just transform into adults. <laughs> that's, that's their puberty. Just wow, 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 wow. And you can actually hear the planet, like, you know, you hear it chomping. There's like a chomping sound mm. effect at one point where it's even really? like, nom, 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 nom. <laughs> yeah. um, but I mean, I, I think you hear, you hear Unicron, don't you, at this bit? Go, the fridge! <laughs> <laughs> just drunk Unicron. Like. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god well, yeah I mean we should talk about this because Unicron is the first big kind of character we see in a lot of ways and so this is of course Orson Welles um, yep. you know, awesome Welles one of the most <laughs> iconic directors of all time I would say directed Citizen Kane uh, which is considered I think, by I many personalities as well more than director just yes cinema yeah. personality isn't it you know yeah, in yeah, front and behind the camera and everything and I would say that internet, Citizen Kane, internet sensation yeah well yeah exactly we'll get to that and I mean I would say that Citizen Kane is considered by most people Tim to be as good as yeah. Transformers the movie I mean he started his career with the greatest film ever made he finished his career with like the second greatest film ever made <laughs> what, you can't you can't really say fairer than that man like, uh, I mean, we wish for those too. innings yeah, this was at the end of his career. It, 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 the problem is, I mean, Orson, he'd had a hard old time and he kind of struggled ever since Citizen Kane, basically, to get a film made without any kind of interference. And by this yeah. point, I mean, he was taking any kind of work that was given to him, frozen pea adverts, French champagne <laughs> mm. adverts. Every um, July. The French champagne advert that Orson Welles did, if you have not seen these outtakes on YouTube, they are some of the funniest things you will ever see in your entire life. 102 take two. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired by that same French excellence. It's fermented in the bottle and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. So Paul Masson. 102 take three. Action please. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. It is my favorite internet funny. But at the same time, as hilarious as those clips are, it is sad as well. It's sad to see like this guy who you know is responsible mm. for this kind of towering cinematic masterpiece to be kind of reduced to this, where he is kind of taking like you know anything. I don't know. I didn't make it through the other side of the wind yet. Like I've tr- I've tried, but 
Oh, oh really? It's, it's tough going. <laughs> this is his reconstructed like Netflix film, isn't it? Yeah. So this is complete creative control. It's not always great. F a fake though. That day, uh, Orson Welles is very good. Yes. Mm. Yeah, I've heard that. Have you got any other Orson Welles favourites apart from this Tim and apart from the obvious with Citizen Kane? Yeah, I mean, Touch of Evil is fantastic, where he's like a corrupt cop on the Mexican border. Trigger warning with a blacked up Charlton Heston. I actually saw Magnificent Ambersons for the first time recently. It's very impressive in places, but again, the ending butchered, reshot by a different director. And it's yeah. so obvious. It like looks like a completely different film, has a completely different feel. Yeah. Is so terrible. You, you kind of heart breaks for the man. Because now, well, it has actually happened, like posthumously, but now Wells would be getting offered all the money by Netflix to bring his mm. vision to the screen. It's and, funny yeah, they have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the <laughs> it's, thing. It's, that it's too late for him to enjoy it. I mean, you know, you get David Fincher <laughs> complaining, being like, oh, okay, get to make Happy Meal movies these days. But it's like, yeah, but Netflix are rolling up a truckload of money to us, mate, to make your dream I know, project. Awesome would have made the Happy Meal movie. Yeah, he would have done. And he did with this. I'm sure <laughs> yeah, Transformers was free Happy Meals. Meals. Um, Surely there was a time. I, my Surely. favorite, like, Lady from Shanghai. I love that one. Oh, really? I haven't seen it yet, but it's, I think it's like next on my list to see of like Wells oh, movies great stuff. as I kind of try and catch up with a few. But I, I think the <laughs> thing is, is just like, you know, obviously to you, Tim, this is, you know, an absolute masterpiece. But I would imagine that Orson, he probably didn't quite yeah. get this film. Have you heard the quote from him about working on this? Yes, yes, I have. Yeah, it's just before poor Orson Welles died. He told his biographer, You know what I did this morning? I played the voice of a toy. I play a planet. I menace somebody called something or other. Then I'm destroyed. My plan to destroy whoever it is thwarted, and I tear myself apart on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> and in a way, isn't that the greatest denouement that anyone could ever hope for? Yeah. <laughs> yeah if only those have been his last words. I think it's I mean, a metaphor well, for his career, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I guess the reality, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of semi-joking these talk about it as being one of the greatest films ever made. And I, I'm, you know, I do know it's obviously got its own limitations and my own affection for it. It's heavily clouding my judgment because it, it's, it, it is what it is. But regardless of how maybe Wells, what, what a bad place he was in personally at the time of making it. You know, he actually, you know, he died less than two weeks after making it. So it was, he really wasn't well. It's still like, you know, it's still got a level of like almost like Faustian gravitas. Even if he was just phoning it in wells the performer still has this kind of sonorous quality to his voice he plays unicorn almost as this literally universe obliterating satan figure yeah i mean I've, i think you can hear that in it um at the same time i, I was almost like oh if you've got awesome wells why do you put this effect on his voice and i actually had to look into that apparently it was because yeah. he saw well when he was recording he was wheezing he was coughing everything like that and they had to kind of do something with his voice to kind of make it sound yeah. okay. It's a shame. You can imagine him just playing it without the synthesizer, but at the same time, you know, he was obviously very unwell at the time, unfortunately. The voice was also apparently, like because, you know, Wells was notoriously um, difficult to work with. You mentioned the champagne advert, which kind of bears testament to that. But apparently when he was speaking, he was just speaking really, really slowly. And they were like, um, yeah, Mr. Wells, can you speak a bit faster? And to which he basically said, no. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, shan't. I shall not. I cannot possibly. I think his line is the quote was something to the effect of I, I couldn't possibly speak these lines any faster. No human could. Um, so they ended up like recording him, and then they accelerated it, but then dropped the pitch, and so to try and keep the bass in his voice, even though they sped it up. 
And so you do end up with this really weird synthesized effect. But yeah, I don't know. It still kind of comes together, still works in the edit. Sounds like that, um, Paul, you remember, that's another classic Wells clip, the voiceover. Yes. Yeah, the peas. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I bet I could imagine Wells being like that while recording this in the (laughs) voice booth. Too much directing around here. Could I have one more go, Lawson, please? Sorry. What? Could I have just one more take of that? Why? I just did it right. Yeah. Look, I'm not used to having more than one person in there. One more word out of you and you go. Is that clear? Yes, sir. I take well, I take directions from one person under protest, but from two I don't sit still. But who the hell are you anyway? No, I'm the engineer. Well, why the hell are you asking me for another one? Well, I thought there was a slight bunk, and I would like just like to be safe. Jesus. This film is none more eighties, is it? I mean, almost immediately as we go into the title sequence, I was like, we've got a simp score from Vince DiCola. Uh, who, of course, mm. was the composer for Rocky IV as well. He did the actual score, like Dakota, and then the actual soundtrack is provided by loads of, like, guitar rock fans of the time. But you do straight away get, like, a jazzed-up guitar band version of the Transformers theme tune alongside, like, kaleidoscopic visuals for the title sequence and everything like that. So we're, like, straight in. And as a kid, I can imagine that being like really cool. Whoa! Well, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine seeing this on the big screen at the time because, yeah, you've just got this, these epic visuals, this epic soundtrack, and the DVD I did watch did have a whole bunch of like film grain effects still on it, so it felt like it was ripped straight from an old 35mm reel. It's like, yes, get this back in 80s cinemas and just relive it all, my God. Have you seen it on the big screen, Tim, at any point? I haven't, man. I haven't. That, that, would, that would be amazing, though. Prince Charles, if you guys are listening, please, please. Yeah. That would Just be... everyone oh, crying at Optimus, everyone screaming, you got the touch. <laughs> oh. I'm, not, I'm not even ready to talk about Optimus Prime yet, but yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I think we've got to talk about Optimus Prime. We've got to talk about Optimus, played by Peter Cullen, who has such an iconic voice. I've got to say, I mean, I completely see why they brought him back for the Michael Bay films to reprise mm. his role. Because he, his voice is so amazing. Like, so iconic. Like, yeah. genuinely, I've been watching all of the Bay movies, and his vocal performance, for me, goes a long way in terms of those films, yeah. because he just absolutely embodies Optimus Prime, leadership. He's just got a great voice performance in this so good you instantly respect him and want to follow him into hell yeah Cullen for PM (laughs) I will do anything he says (laughs) yeah 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 definitely definitely Megatron must be stopped no matter the cost we get straight into this don't we because almost immediately there's like a pretty hardcore decepticon attack with them like brutally executing innocent autobots and you know Mm. immediately we're kind of flung into what feels like the big final battle between the autobots and the decepticons that's been building up for two seasons on television yeah, absolutely. You get that opening sequence where the Decepticons spy on Prime and Ironhide. They need to send a shuttle, um, I think, down to Earth. And then uh, Megatron and Starscream and uh, you know, like a squadron of the Decepticons break into the shuttle and just straight up slaughter everyone on board. And like, you know, if if you were a fan of the cartoons, those characters, people like Brawn and Ironhide were like, you know, favourites. And they're just like unceremoniously killed. I think Ironhide takes a... a mortal wound to the chest but he's not quite dead and he's crawling along the floor and just 
Megatron just looks down at him and says, such heroic nonsense. It just blows his head off. It, it's, you know. <laughs> like, it's, uh, uh, I, see, I had no idea these were, like, significant people. I thought they were just, like, disposable robots. Yeah, I wondered, like, yeah, robots. which ones are these? And are they going to be and real just, characters? I assume like, they were. The, it leaves no prisoners for the average viewer, does it? Like, Or just, like, the person coming to it cold. It doesn't have any impact. Yeah, it, like, is there that weird juxtaposition where I imagine in a kid's show that has to run and run, like the Transformers are probably pretty resilient in fights they get into. They probably survive a lot. And here it's like two lasers to the chest and they're dead. <laughs> this is it, man. This is it. You're, you're quite right. Like it won't have the same impact as if you were a child who was a fan of the show. But equally, it just kind of really sets the tone that we're not messing around. That this is an actual war. The way the heroes are going to die. It, it re- immediately puts the stakes super high because you, you kind of get the sense very early on that nobody is safe. Then when the shuttle gets to Earth, it kind of kicks off into the battle for Autopot City. Again, like it's an astonishing war sequence that goes on for about 10 minutes with people just getting killed left, right and centre. Yeah, I mean, I suppose even if you don't know the significance of those characters who are getting killed, they're still like brutal slayings of what are clearly meant to be the good guys, aren't they? Like there's actually a line from the Decepticons that says, their defences are broken, let the slaughter begin! Which is quite nasty <laughs> in many ways. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But of course, we've got Starscream here, uh, Matt, which you referenced as having a Starscream figure yourself in later life, because we're, we're big fans of Starscream, aren't we? Yeah, he's one of the best characters. Like he's someone who his personality really shines through. It may be quite one note, but he's he's very much that sniveling, conniving guy that you know is gonna try and get the upper hand. And I think at the time, of course, we were like just desperate to see that Starscream in the Bay yes. movies. And it's kind yes. of like there's hints of it, but it's never quite full. Whereas here, like every single exchange kind of ends with like you're an idiot, Starscream. Which <laughs> <It's like, laughs> is fucking hilarious. <laughs> but like there's a bit of almost so immediately. You- where Starscream is clearly, visibly, like, pissed off when Megatron says that good old Laserbeak never fails him, unlike other Starscream. <laughs> it is so funny. Are you a fan of Starscream, Tim? Yeah, I mean, you, you've hit it right on the nose. Like, he is, like, this snivelling, conniving little character. The way his character arc ends is entirely in keeping with that as well. It's very astutely drawn, like, a very quick, bold lines, really, who he is. You know, you get the sense that he is this duplicitous Machiavellian, backstabbing, career-climbing guy who's dangerous mm. just because he's so so ambitious. Mm. And, um, it's better than Shakespeare. Just just say it, Tim. It's what we're all thinking. I mean, <laughs> it is the Shakespeare of the, of the 80s, my friend, yeah. <laughs> Shakespeare. Shakespeare. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> um, I mean, I, I cannot imagine what ran through kids' minds who were fans of the show who went to see this in the cinema for the first time. Where Prime died in a time where you wouldn't have got spoilers, or very, very rarely at that time, unless it was like in the playground next day of some kid <laughs> who saw it first night or something. Of just well, yeah, if there was, if there was Twitter in 1986, would all of the toxic fans been like, this film is rubbish, how dare they kill off my prime in the first 20 <laughs> yeah, minutes? Yeah, yeah. I boycott, mean, Tim, boycott. you saw it as a kid on Betamax. Did you know going in that prime was going to die? No, no, not at all. And I, I guess maybe it says something about my love of horror films in later life. That I've kind of, I'm, I am drawn to those kind of those films which are like confrontational about stuff like death i feel like maybe in the 80s and 70s like this was maybe somewhat more common like i remember being devastated by raymond briggs's uh uh the snowman simile which basically says hey life is really magical oh no he's dead and he's melted and um 
but yeah, with, with Death of Prime, like I, I still find it like really, really moving. It's it's played just really straight, and like that moment where he's like, Megatron must be stopped no matter the cost. There is a sense where he's like walking to his death. He, he he's going to give it all to to save his friends. Just after he, he's mortally wounded, Cup, who's one of the other characters, says Prime did it. He turned the tide, and so his death is is how he saves them. Yeah. So like when he comes comes to find Megatron. Just like in terms of some of the iconography of that moment, he gets pierced in his side by like Megatron throws, I think, like a snapped off bit of debris and hits him in the side. Um, and then he's shot and I think sliced into the side as well in the same same area, but like a lightsaber. Very almost like Christ-like iconography, like the piercing of the side and then the sacrificial death to rescue his friends. And, you know, again, like I'm not saying it's better than Shakespeare. I'm just saying, you know, but it's it is better, better than, than, than the Bible now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a whole new religion. It may be the apex of Western civilization. I'm not, I'm not sure. You know, <laughs> oh my god! But he sort of dies through his own nobility, doesn't he? Because of the whole thing, of, you know. Of course, Megatron begs for mercy so he can get hold of his gun, knowing that mm. Prime will kind of, you know, because he's so kind of good and noble. Uh, will be mm. fooled by that. Yeah, and then, of course, like the other wrinkle in that is Hot Rod, who we haven't touched on yet, but he's like one of the new characters who was introduced through the film. He's like this, as the name might suggest, like a young, hot-headed kind of warrior. Um, and he sees the Megatron's going for the gun, and he leaps on Megatron to try and save Prime. But in the scuffle, Megatron puts Hot Rod into a headlock, and that's why Prime doesn't open fire. Like Prime is sparing the life of his soldier whilst uh, Megatron uses him as a shield. And then Megatron shoots Prime a few times before Prime regains enough strength to knock Megatron off the edge of the cliff and he, he's badly injured as well. But then that, that whole sequence ends with like Hot Rod crouching over a mortally wounded Prime going, Prime, forgive me. And like the guilt that follows Hot Rod for the rest of the film until the very end. I, I, I just find it really moving because, you know, the sense of like, I tried to do a good thing and it's gone bad mm. in the worst possible way. And I've ended up actually being semi-responsible for the death of my leader and my mentor and my friend. You know, that's like, again, it's like massive, massive themes for what is ostensibly a marketing ploy about wiping out toys to sell them to kids. It's yeah, amazing no. hearing that Hot Rod was like a new character for this as well. Because like uh, coupled with the you know fan reaction of the time again, you can imagine this brand new character they don't know coming in and getting their beloved Prime killed. What a, what a great way of putting the audience against Hot Rod and then, mm. you know, having them go with him on this journey for the end. It's like, what better setup can there be than, oh, the new kid who's fucked things up and taken away yeah. my favourite toy, like, <laughs> literally. I mean, this is it, because it, it, was, it was an idea that they got to basically to sell more toys. The thing that kind of started it for them when they were in the writing process is, um, you mentioned the G.I. Joe movie, which is also a Hasbro property, was being made at the same time. The writers of the Transformers film had uh, heard that G.I. Joe were planning on killing off their lead character, who's a, a guy called Duke. And they thought, oh, this is a great idea. We're going to do this with us as well. But then the reaction was so extreme. So like the kids who saw Transformers, they were crying. So the parents were taking the kids out of the theater. I think one kid locked himself in his bedroom and wouldn't come out. And, they, and basically they were like, they just ditched it for G.I. Joe because they're like, no, this is a bad idea, actually. We're just traumatizing a bunch of kids. <laughs> and I think there's one quote from one of the producers, I think, that's saying like, yeah, we just, we just went way too far. Because it is really devastating and, uh, mm. and, and played completely straight. Yeah, no, definitely. And of, I should mention that Hot Rod is part of the 80s-ness of it all, because he is, of course, voiced by Judd Nelson. Huge 80s icon, who I presume it's got to be a reference to this, that in Bumblebee, the latest Transformers movie, 
Uh, there's a whole kind of motif in that of Bumblebee keeps imitating Judd Nelson at the end of The Breakfast Club throughout. So that's got to be a link. And also, yeah. another thing that I noticed was, uh, like I said, I've been watching kind of all of the Transformers movies for kind of research for this. And I was looking at letterbox reviews for Transformers Dark of the Moon, which is the third uh, of the Michael Bay Transformers movies, where the villain is once again voiced by Leonard Nimoy, who plays Sentinel Prime. Excuse me, gentlemen, may I ask, what is this technology you're looking for? It is the ability to reshape the universe. Together the pillars form a space bridge. I designed, and I alone can control it. It defies your laws of physics to transport matter through time and space. Towards the end of the film, he's having a big fight with Optimus Prime, and Optimus Prime is beating him like, half to death or whatever, and he's kind of coming towards him with his gun, and the bad guy, uh, played by Nimoy, begs for his life essentially. Mm. He's like, no, Prime, please. Like, yeah. And Prime just gets, fuck you. <laughs> like, blows him away. <laughs> like, I went from people... my mistake in 86, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And loads of people on Letterboxd were saying, like, oh, it's really weird that, like, you know, the good guy, like, kills, like, the bad guy when he's begging for his life. And I was like, is that a weird, sly reference to Transformers the movie where Megatron begs for his life and Optimus Prime does do the right thing and kind of backs off for a minute and ultimately dies? And maybe, like, that Prime in the baby is remembering that in his head, going, nah, I'm not falling this I think, I think I've seen this. I think I've seen this reference as like a running joke There's uh, about the whole thing of Optimus Prime's character in the Bay films is so basically far away from his noble old self because he's like <laughs> gangland executing everybody and saying lines <laughs> like, I'm going to fucking kill you, basically. And he's really ruthless in the Bay films. Like, he says a lot of shit which sounds like a complete insane military leader. Like, Doesn't he films. shoot one of them? It might have been the Sentinel World Prime fight, actually. Doesn't he shoot one in the head at point blank range and it's like yeah. robot eyes, like, bursting out his brain? <laughs> yeah, I think that is the one we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love it. It's great. <laughs> oh, I mean, that's that's probably says as much about Michael Bay as it does about anything else, you know, because... Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, it's not that I hate those films or anything, but like they're definitely quite a departure tonally from like, this kind of eighty source material. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, actually, let's let's get into that a little bit because Paul talked about the first Bay Transformers earlier, and Paul, you you enjoyed it, didn't you? The first Bay Transformers. Yeah, well, I, I think well, the Spielberg aspects really shining through in that first film, where he's absolutely reining in. I think some of M- Michael Bay's excesses and like delivering a more straight story of like boy in his car, like first car. I like the relationship, but his dual romance with like Megan Fox and, uh, and the car that turns out to be the transformer. And it was really funny as well. It spent a lot of time building up the characters and a lot of uh, fun with the humans who usually are, I think secondary to the act, the subsequent action in the later mm-hmm. films, aren't they? So, I mean, yeah, it was a perfect balance. It did feel quite eighties at times. It, aside from the cutting edge special effects, it was like, there were scenes that felt they could be from like 1983 or F4. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I, I saw it in the cinema like you, Paul, back in the day, and I, I did enjoy it then, but I rewatched it for this. I've got to say, it does it does hold up. It's, it's decent like in terms of, like you said, I think you're right. I think it comes across as more Spielbergian than you would expect from a Bay film. And it's, it's got some proper nice humour to it, like uh, the Transformers in the Garden and stuff like that. And, you know, just that leaning it down to a very simple story 
of Boy oh. and his car. Gone, and it's got a great score as well, like uh, yes. Stephen Jabalowski. I love the music for that film, mm. particularly when the Autobots arrive on Earth. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the first one, and, and for the reasons Paul's uh, shared there, yeah, I think it's it's really solid. I think it goes off a cliff a little bit with the second one, Revenge of the Fallen, which I pretty much hated, I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've got, I quite like Dark of the Moon again. Um, yeah, didn't think much of Age of Extinction, and I have not yet brought myself to watch The Last Night. Uh, yeah, I think there's definitely still stuff you can enjoy in there, but but yeah, it's a little bit variable mm. as, a, as a franchise. Well, it's such a shame where it feels like Bumblebee is the film that it should have been from the start. And it kind of feels mm. a shame that Bumblebee kind of ends in a way that feels like it's tying back into Bay's first film when it could have very much been a soft reboot. And yeah, yeah. I think the diminishing returns throughout Bay's films, like the third one, Dark of the Moon, I remember seeing that in the cinema in 3D actually, and it being genuinely a really impressive feat of live action 3D, because mm. normally, mm. sort of Avatar aside, live action 3D stuff back in the day was always a bit of a headache. And you'd think with something like Transformers, which is just like masses of CG steel kicking about, it would be, it'd be, it'd be a nightmare, but it was really well done. I remember that being really distinctive. And then I haven't seen Age of Extinction or Last Night yet, but yeah. Can you skip two and just go watch the Leonard Nimoy action for three? Well, you probably might have all noticed that I have been knee-deep in Bayhem for the last week or so. <laughs> um, literally. Yeah. You've got, got tinnitus. Yeah, pretty much working my way through the film. I, I've watched Bumblebee as well. And you know what? I don't know what the fuck it is. I think that I just chose the right time to watch these movies because I saw the first one in the cinema... I thought it was fine, but I wasn't like a giant fan or anything like that. Um, I never watched any of the sequels, not even Bumblebee, uh, which I did hear good things about. And then, like, literally, I was like, you know what? We're doing Transformers the movie, the spotlight of the movies. I want to be kind of informed. I want to kind of be able to place this within the lineage of the Transformers theatrical releases. I'm going to do them all. I'm going to do it. So I went all in on the Transformers franchise and uh, re-watched the first Bay film and was pleasantly surprised at how well it stood up and was like, oh, this is actually, yeah, it's really, uh, really decent. Weirdly, I mean, Bumblebee is like very, very similar story uh, to the first Transformers, just more stripped down and with a girl instead of a boy. And obviously the sequences on Cybertron in Bumblebee are mm. very impressive. They look really cool, almost to the point 
where you're like, oh man, can we just get an entire film that's done like this, like just amazing CG like Transformers on Cybertron. But like the rest of the films, um, I assumed I would despise them, but I really didn't all that. And let me say, they are not good movies like Revenge of the Fallen, Dark of the Moon, uh, Dark of the Moon and Age of Extinction. They're not good films necessarily. But I enjoyed the hell out of watching them at the time. And you know what it is? It's fucking Corona. It's fucking lockdown. It's the (laughs) fact that we have now been denied, apart from Tenant, any big screen spectacle releases all year. And Roman Polanski is Tenant. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) About Michael Bay. But apart from, I mean, yes, there is CG in the films because the Transformers are CG. However, all of the locations, the kind of explosions, the action outside the Transformers is all practically achieved. And there's a lot of really good practical action, uh, large scale in those movies. And they are like massive feats of spectacle. And by the time it got to the end of Dark of the Moon and like, you know, you've got fucking skyscrapers splitting in half and they're inside, they're all kind of falling down. I was like, I was just all in. I was like, you know, this is great. I'm kind of just having a blast just being in this huge, as huge as you can get, cinematic Mm. spectacle. took over the planet. You'll be fine. I promise you. It's over. I'm sorry, but it's over. faith in us but never in yourselves from here the fight will be your own Run! 2020 the year where the lack of blockbuster burnout made Dempsey appreciate base transformers yeah, that, that, that's literally it that's the other one. I think if I watched them in any other year I would have fucking hated them but, you know, uh, yeah, but uh, I must say, last night is dog shit. Last night is really, really bad. So maybe that's, that's where the ride ends. As I will catch it at some point, you know, just for completion's sake. I, I have seen Bumblebee, which, you know, I enjoyed. But I don't know, I find Michael Bay's pretty good at putting on these kind of, like you said, these kind of big, low impact mentally. You don't really have to think too much. But there's quite a lot of, like, objectionable stuff in there, isn't it? Like, a lot of, like, oh, yeah. the, female char- the female characters are just, like, treated so badly. And I end up kind of just feeling, like, equal parts, like, my love of Transformer on one hand and my kind of, like hatred of Michael Bay's values in the other hand and I'm like oh, oh. Did, you hear that, did you hear that Sean Connery anecdote from uh, The Rock 
No, that was sir. our friend from uh, Empire, Nick DeSemlin, put up like he did a lot of great Connery stories. One was from the set of The Rock, where uh, Michael Bay attempted to direct Sean Connery, and Sean just turned around and said, "Why did you just go blow up a bridge?" <laughs> <laughs> completely right Tim because in Age of Extinction I don't know where you remember this but there is a, a kind of jaw-dropping statutory mm. rape gag where uh, did you Jack Rayner is in Age of Extinction Matt mm. obviously you like from Sing Street and stuff and he's good in it but there's this very weird situation where basically he's dating Mark Wahlberg's daughter in the film and she's 17 so underage in America and he's 20 and so Mark Wahlberg turns around to him. He's like, oh, oh you've got two choices. Like, either I'm going to kick your ass or report you to the police. Like, what's it going to be? <laughs> and Jack Rayner pulls out a laminated card in his wallet, which has the Romeo and Juliet law printed on it, which is apparently a real thing where basically in America, in certain states, or certainly in the state of Texas, if you've had a active relationship prior to basically like him when he was still underage himself, he had an active relationship with her when she was 14 and it's 14 or above and there can't be any more of a three year difference, then you can still have sex with an underage person America wants you go overage if there's a pre-established relationship and he's basically got this as a thing like you know to pull out at any time if anyone challenges him and goes oi pedo he could be like oh, no uh, check out <laughs> Does, my doesn't uh, that sound like the writer or... going like how can I justify my life's choices here well, yeah, I'm exactly. just write I was like, this uh, I was like this feels like a defence <laughs> that Michael Bay is really going to be pulling out at some point you know what I mean <laughs> how old are you 20. She's a 17-year-old girl. So we can work this two ways. One, I punch you right in the mouth and you call the police on me. Dad. Or two, I just call the cops on you because this is illegal. She's a minor. We're protected by the Romeo and Juliet laws. We dated for a little while. I was a sophomore and he was a senior. It's fine. No, it's not fine. We've got a pre-existing juvenile foundation relationship. Statute 2705-3. What? Texas statute? That a real law? Romeo and Juliet, huh? You know how those two ended up? But it is highly disturbing. And meanwhile, Megan Fox has no career. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Although she's starring in an action film at the moment that I want to see called Rogue, I really, really hope she has her kind of mm. return. Because you know what? Rewatching those movies, I, I was like, I remember when they were out, everyone was slagging her off, going, oh, she can't act for Toffee and everything like that. She's perfectly fine. She's absolutely fine in those mm. first two films and I've seen her she's good in Jennifer's body and I tell you what she looks like Laurence Olivier next to Rose Huntington Whiteley who takes over as the female lead in Dark of the Moon <laughs> uh, but back to so Transformers we're coming up on my favourite scene which I think you know as we know it's uh, Shakespeare from my limited knowledge of Transformers I did sort of remember Starscream being a bit snivelling uh, in that movie <laughs> and so when I got to see him here kick the wounded Megatron mm. from the moving spaceship I was like four of this please I, I still love that yeah, yeah, yeah. scene one of Is them incredible like literally every line in that scene is fucking hilarious where as megatron has how shall we say departed i nominate myself as the new leader 
Wait! The Constructicons form Devastator, the most powerful robot we should rule! Soundwave superior, Constructicons inferior. Who are you calling inferior? Nobody would follow an uncharismatic bore like you! <laughs> the kind of trash talking that's going on between all the Decepticons is fucking hilarious in this scene, man. It was an hysterical Yeah, I was surprised yeah, that it didn't result in... Because it's all this kind of in-house bickering, but I thought, you know, the track record this film's going on so far, I'm surprised they're not pulling each other's heads off as well. Even more death! I, I was just going to say, because this comes immediately after Prime's death scene. Prime's scene is quite tender, where his friends are gathered around him. And of course, that's where we get the Matrix of Leadership is introduced as a MacGuffin as well, where um, essentially it's this glowing crystal inside Prime's chest and he kind of gives it to Ultra Magnus as the next leader of the Autobots. But we know that this is what Unicron fears and this is what he's wanting to destroy. So that seems like full of tenderness and full of emotion. And then it immediately cuts to, like you said, like Starscream just being super callous, you know, super just dismissive, just chucks his, his dead and dying mates out, out the window. And it kind of really sets this kind of distinction between the way those two sides operate in terms of what they prioritise. Like, there's no camaraderie between the Decepticons. It's pure power hungriness and, and uh, disregard. It's that thing of, like, shows the juxtaposition between the two races because you get Optimus dying and got the kid fucking crying over his decaying body. It's all very tragic and everything. <laughs> and then instantly you've got all going to shit with the Decepticons. And I was like, oh, as soon as their leader dies, they completely fall apart because they're mm. all such ruthless cunts that they just kind of instantly all portraying each other. Everything. And also you mentioned the Matrix of leadership because this reminds me and matt you'll remember this of uh, i don't know if you've ever seen tim the rude awakening of optimus prime i have indeed seen the rude awakening of optimus prime. <laughs> i mean it is it's one of the funniest things I've give me that fucking, fucking matrix like, so immediately the, <laughs> the rude awakening optimus prime is a youtube video uh that's gone down into legend where it's basically when Optimus prime when they brought him back from the dead in the tv series which i presume is in the next season and basically someone has gone back and kind of revoiced the episode <laughs> with new uh, dialogue. And it's very, very well done because all the voices are incredibly well done and everything. And it actually kind of feels so well done. You feel like it almost could be the episode. Do you have a plan, Optimus? Of course I have a plan. Ironhide, Prowl, Hopper. I want you three They're to... not here, Prime. I don't know how to tell you this, Optimus. But Where are they? They're not here. I'm afraid they didn't survive the attack on they the... They died in battle. I'm sorry, Prime. Ironhide. Dead. My friends. It seems we're in worse shape than I thought, Autobots. Who do we have left? Wheelie, say. I help you today. Who the fuck is this Autobot? Wheelie's my name! Wanna play a game? No! Uh, Prime, Wheelie's been helping us out for a little while now. Vector Sigma. We use him as a decoy a lot. He can stay and guard the base. Who else do we have? Hey Optimus, it's me, Blurt. It's so great that oh, you're on the show. Oh shit. You back to life. Now we have a chance against the Decepticon. We never Shut up, Blur. Out of all the Autobots to survive. Fuck me. This is all your fault, Rodimus. Great! Who else is still with us? Yo, this is Blaster Blaster at you. Don't you worry, Jack. You know I got your back. How you doing, Prime? Blaster. Aw, oh, shit. What's up, you motherfucker? Yo, what's the hat? It's been about a minute since I've seen you. For sure. 
Now that's what I'm talking about. Now who else? Hey, Brian, it's me, Bumblebee. Bumblebee, my small little friend. You look different. Yeah, I just got totally rebuilt. I feel better than ever. I feel like a gold bug. <laughs> and that's who you'll be from now on, Bumblebee. Gold bug. <laughs> wow, thanks. <laughs> Uh, gee, Optimus, uh, I was kind of thinking I could still be called Bumblebee. Quiet, Goldbug. Shut, Shut up, up now, Optimus. Optimus. <laughs> Don't let it bother you, kid. Wish I could feel like a Goldbug. At my old age, I feel like a piece of shit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's who you'll be from now on, Cup. Shit piece. Uh, I don't know about that. Shit piece. Goldbug. Organize a strike team immediately. Blaster, you'll hang out with me. Rodimus, I want to have a word with you. Yes, Optimus. Give me back that fucking Matrix immediately. You've run this organization right out of the fucking ground, Hot Rod. I tried to do my best. If you would let Ultra Magnus have the Matrix like I had intended, then we wouldn't be in this mess now, would we? No, we wouldn't, Optimus, sir. The best you can do is bring me back to life to fix your problems. Probably the best move as leader that you've ever made. I'm sorry I couldn't be the leader that you were. Now, you and Wheelie will stay here to guard the base. Yes, Optimus Prime, sir. It's Please. so strange how small things like that can really just permeate our brains, because the amount of times we've gone, you could stay and guard the base. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> it's just yeah, become, yeah. It's become shorthand for, like, you stay here. <laughs> but they were right about Wheelie, because Wheelie is the most fucking annoying character there's ever been. Mm. It's like, my name's Wheelie, want to play a game? No! <laughs> like, just, he is annoying as fuck. Is he the one that talks really fast and, like, is... Well, yeah, there's like two. Like, Wheelie talks in a high voice and sort of fast, and then Blur also talks fast. I'm like, oh, too many right, yeah. fast-talking robots. <laughs> yeah. big, my pr- big problem for me with this film is the far too many characters. There I mean, are a lot of characters, yeah. I mean, it's like the fucking wire or something of space. <laughs> <laughs> but half of them are dead, like, in about five minutes, you know. I mean, Wheelie's also voiced by Frank Welker again. Like, Frank is kind of, like, putting a, a large number of the characters in, the, in this film as well. He's... Uh, the I, I, I was listening out for Scatman Carruthers as well, like in some of the well, you know, famous voice cast. There's uh, Robert Stack, who I love from 1941. Guys, mm-hmm. guys, 1941. Oh, guys, no, anyone? Not uh, 1941 again. Yeah. <laughs> Paul was a huge and fan Lionel of Stander as well. I, I, and Lionel yeah. Stander was in 1941 as well. I read up a bit about him today. He didn't name names in the McCarthy trials mm. uh, oh, in good. the 50s, and like basically had his career stopped for like 15 years by those bastards. Oh. Uh, till he came back and did some really good movies in the late 60s, 70s. You know, he's in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. Oh uh, wow! Okay. Manage, yeah, managing the uh, that haberdashery, like you know where Harmonica turns up, sort of quarter of the way in. Is that the mm-hmm. kind of the bar kind of thing where he's... The bar, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah he's yeah, managing yeah. the bar. He has that really long scene with Claudio Cardinale. Yeah, he's a great character actor. Yeah, no, that's good. And yeah, I should talk about we are reaching the entrance of Leonard Nimoy because, of course, what happens is Unicron takes the dead body or almost dead body of uh, Megatron and kind of rejuvenates him into Galvatron. Uh, there's kind of a big transformation scene, uh, which is all kind of quite cool, almost like 2001-like in a way. And he kind of turns him into Galvatron, and suddenly he is voiced by Leonard Nimoy. I will rip open Ultra Magnus and every other Autobot until the Matrix has been destroyed. 
as I always do, I'll kind of frame this within his career at the time. So in 1986, Leonard Nimoy also, of course, directed and starred in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. These are the voyages of the crew of the Starship Enterprise. Judging by the pollution content of the atmosphere, I believe we have arrived at the latter half of the 20th century. Stardate, 1986. San Francisco. Our own world is waiting for us to save it. They have 24 hours. Everybody remember where we parked. Break up. To complete their mission. It looked like a cadet review. He will beam in tonight, collect the photons and beam out. I want you all to be very careful without being discovered. We have an intruder. All right, who are you? You're not exactly catching us at our best. That much is certain. This is an extremely primitive and paranoid culture. What does it mean, exact change? Many of their customs will doubtless take us by surprise. We're ready for beam out. My transporter power is down to minimal. I've got to bring you in one at a time. You're from outer space. No, I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. Let's do our job and get out of here. Freeze! Take off, can you hear me? Freeze! I've lost it. Who are you? You can't. Our next stop is the 23rd century. Full power now, sir. Shields at maximum. Steady. Hold on tight, lassie. Can we make breakaway speed? That's all I can give you! Book eight. also this year where they finally released on VHS the cage the unaired pilot because of course it was unaired until like the 80s uh, where they finally kind of showed it so that was a big big year for Star Trek fans you were the ones who said it first Star Trek lives and live it does for over two decades it has But now I want to take you back to a time when the Enterprise and Spock and Kirk and all the rest were just part of an idea I had. Back to the beginnings of Star Trek. To the first Star Trek pilot, a pilot being a film that is meant to demonstrate to a network what a new series will look like each week. This 60 Minutes is today considered something of a television document. And some regard it as perhaps as exciting as any Star Trek that's since been filmed. When the network saw what you soon will see, they rejected it. From that day until now, the first pilot has never been seen in its original form. And the only other thing he did this year was he played evil Moroccan magician in an episode of Fairy Tale Theatre, which was the story of Aladdin. <laughs> I knew that you would eventually come to appreciate my charm. Yes, well, I was so foolish to resist you. Yes. <laughs> what about Aladdin? Who? <laughs> oh, my darling. Your hands are magic. <laughs> yeah. We will always be together. What are you doing with my wife? Uncle. Oh. Aladdin, my dear friend, <laughs> I'm afraid you're a little too late. 
So yeah, I mean that is uh, obviously a, a big role. <laughs> well, I watched For the Love of Spock in sort of preparation, oh, sort yeah. of focused on Nimoy, and it's a very good documentary, really heartfelt, directed by his son Adam, and you get a real insight into their relationship over the years. It's not always been plain sailing, let's put it that way. I think that's the best part of it, you know, hearing about like Nimoy's home life and you know what he sort of had to sacrifice for his career and put that career first a lot of times he saw a lot of like you know his contemporary actors like get one big hit and then struggle afterwards when it wrapped up but he was like that will never happen to me and uh, never really stopped working uh, until sort of the late 90s when he sort of semi-retired and did a bit of voice work and stuff but um, this is like you know his pinnacle mountain around 86 you know he's directing a very successful film for Star Trek franchise that crosses over to mainstream audiences people who don't go to see star trek films went to see this film and it did extremely well you know and he gets off the back of this free men and a baby doesn't he and uh, it goes into a greater success so good time to be nimoy uh this year particularly it didn't get mentioned in the documentary though oh what sadly. The, his work on transformers, did transformers yeah. <laughs> oh, man. yeah i was, I was waiting for oversight, it didn't oversight. Turn up. <laughs> Like Adam, uh, there was a great bit with Shatner talking about like uh, Let Nimoy's singing career. You know, we both did singing, but uh difference between me and Leonard was uh, he could hold a note. Uh, <laughs> uh, he, he could hold a note. That was it. <laughs> and then he laughs. It's just like, yeah, but Shatner could, couldn't hold a note or sing a note for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do remember seeing the uh, Leonard Nimoy album in a flea market uh, there's more than one yeah like, there's, like, God, there's yeah, like yeah. loads and i don't know have everybody seen his bilbo baggins song no oh, yeah i think that's something i have seen yeah you need to look that up like bilbo baggins by Lilith nimoy is hilarious in the middle of the earth in the land of shire lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire with his long wooden pipe fuzzy woolly toes he lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him bilbo bilbo baggins he's only three feet tall bilbo bilbo baggins the bravest little hobbit of them all so this where we're kind of reaching the midpoint of the film where we get kind of hot rod ships shot down and kind of you get a lot of the transformers sort of kind of stranded and stuff like that. I, I must admit, this is sort of the low point of the film for me. The the mid section, uh, where, like you say, Paul, there, there's so many characters, and the plot starts to get slightly incomprehensible for me in the mid section. I don't know how the rest of you felt about that. Well, they didn't need to. They didn't need to split them up, did they? I mean. Just yeah. one crash crash landing on a planet would have done and sort of have them go off on submissions. But the fact they're splitting them across the galaxy and introducing like two sets of new characters mm. on each planet that we hadn't also seen. Yeah, who yeah. are in the middle of their own movie, essentially. Like the whole Shark Decons, Execution Squads and that four-headed, spinning-headed emperor thing. Like There's a lot of mad ideas here. Like, you know, well, when they end up underwater, see... like fighting off a giant robot squid. It's like... The imagination level stays really high, but it is a bit yeah. kind of like, oh, this is throwing a lot at the wall to see what sticks. Yeah, the spinning head guys are called the Quintessence, and um, their story, I think, is expanded on in like season uh, three of the show. Uh, basically, not really clear in the film, but what they're doing is trying people for what they perceive to be the theft of Cybertron. Mm. And so if they think you're innocent, they kill you anyway, but if they think you're guilty, they kill you as well. So it's kind of like <laughs> a loosely situation. But yeah, I mean, seeing that as a kid as well, like seeing people declared innocent and then ceremoniously executed, 
again, it's like an unusual narrative choice. I remember like, it kind of messing me up a bit as a kid, thinking like, well... There's that, no justice! <laughs> that doesn't seem fair. <laughs> like, <yeah. laughs> the best thing you do is hopefully a mistrial. That's the only way out. You see it happen to a guy called Arbulus, and again to Kranix, who are the surviving robots from the opening scene when that planet was being eaten by Unicron. And Kranix even says, I think, I'm the last of my kind, as they're dragging him out. And so actually, it's not just that he's being unfairly executed, it's that it's the genocidal end of his entire race. It um, felt very Dark Knight Rises, this section. I enjoyed that. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, well, but if only they just knew, all they needed to do was just dive underneath the sharks to survive. It would have been fine. And we also get the arrival of Monty Python's Eric Idle, who turns up, who I also found annoying. Bizarre kind well, he, of He was someone I... I had no idea was in this, but I did recognise their voice. I was like, is that Eric Idle? And I would normally be like, probably not. But seeing as this film already has Orson Welles in it, I was like, probably is. So. <laughs> I mean, he walked in with a guitar singing one foot in the grave. It's probably what gave it away, isn't it? Well, that's all for a Transformer. <laughs> <laughs> he seems to start flogging cleaning products halfway through. I didn't quite get what was going on there. Yeah, he's been like tuning into like TV ads somehow. <laughs> Just Right. Firing yeah, off all yeah, these yeah. slogans. Yeah. Was that just an easy way to get product placement in? Do you reckon there's some deals <laughs> going on with cleaning products? I don't know. Uh, the Dinobots, I always, number one, I always forget there's a Dinobot called Slag. Slag. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, the, the, the Was Dino- he renamed in the British version? Uh, I don't know, Tim. Was, it, was he renamed in the British version? No, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure he was slag for life. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> in the uh, British version of a Han Solo Adventures book I've got from the uh, very early Expanded Universe, they had a, a, a droid in that called Bollocks <laughs> in uh, the American version and in uh, the British, I think it was Zollocks. So, <laughs> somebody at the, at the publisher change, might have the right yeah. idea. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember the Dinobots being like learning this. What was going on there? Like, yeah, I don't. Is that is that a thing, Tim? Like, the Dinobots are kind of mentally challenged, I suppose. <laughs> I never thought I'd be so happy to see those big bozos. Me Grimlock, no bozo, me king. So, as I understand it, like in season one and two of the show, the Dinobots were always slightly functioning at a lower IQ because their kind of characters were these kind of super muscular destroyers who perhaps weren't the biggest thinkers of the group but uh, yeah apparently the film kind of marks a, a slight tonal change where their low iq kind of becomes comic relief and then that's carried through into the show afterwards because yeah certainly the way grimlock in particular is, is played is somebody who he, he's very much played for laughs that he, he's not, mm. not very smart compared to his contemporaries yeah, you, you're quite right. Like the section after the two ships crash on the the two different planets, it does take a breather for about twenty minutes. But the pacing picks up again fairly quickly when they then mount their assault to go back to Unicron. Well, it all culminates in this very bizarre like dance scene, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's <laughs> the that's the crazy high point of the film. Definitely, is <laughs> absolutely mad when we got to that point. Uh, I kind of lost my mind slightly there. But then, like you say, we do start steamrolling into the the conclusion because, of course, you get poor old Ultra Magnus who has taken on the Matrix from Prime and kind of, you know, he, he saw Ultra Magnus is the Cyclops, isn't he? The loyal number two, very mm. straight-laced and stuff, quite boring. 
and he kind of takes on the uh, Matrix and kind of instantly gets like bad. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, that, uh, that was a huge shock because I obviously I was prepared for Prime to go, but when it got to that and and he just kind of explodes into like a bunch of pieces, I was like, holy shit, Magnus as <laughs> yeah. well! Like he's it's... the replacement, isn't he? And actually, even before Magnus, um, we kind of skipped over a little bit, but Starscream's assassinated as well, like Galvatron. Yes. Comes and turns get, to fucking dust. Yeah, like, like um, you know, by this point, Starscream has uh, crowned himself as the new leader of the Decepticons, and Galvatron appears as this reincarnated, like, dark Christ figure, you know, like he's been brought back by Unicron, which is another thing. I mean, like, you know, the good guy dies, the bad guy gets resurrected. Like, it's completely back to front in terms of what traditional narratives would have. Galvatron blows Starscream in, into into dust and then Ultra Magnus God bless him is like there he's got Matrix of Leadership and like Prime had said to him it will light us darkest hour and like poor Ultra Magnus is like trying to open the thing going Prime you said it would light our darkest hour and he's uh, ripped to pieces basically like in the um, in the original script it wasn't that he was blown up he was quartered which again is like <laughs> medieval execution over here like exactly that because like um, if you listen to the sound effect when he's when he's killed it's a it's a groan not an exclamation and um, there's some speculation it's because it was recorded with a view that he would be tore asunder exactly and so he, but of course like by the time you get to the end he is somebody who does come back maybe because he is quartered into neat pieces they're able to rebuild him and um He's back and present for the final assault on Unicron. Talk about Starscream. That's it. I, I love Starscream and his little crown. That seems so on brand for him. That's hilarious. Yeah. And yeah. then yeah, he just gets like absolutely blown away and his crown like crushed like instantly, which was you know only only right for Starscream because he's always kind of getting to yet another yet another death. But yeah, we're yeah. kind of leading yeah. into the grand finale. You got cut, but he's randomly telling old war stories while there appears to be an actual war going on it's just like oh, fuck's sake cut. like oh get with it but he actually there's he, there's a nice moment where he sees unicron and he actually says he's he hasn't seen anything like unicron before and it's almost like actually the setup for him telling those old war stories is now there's, there's no more old war story to tell because he's never seen anything comparable with this even mm. in all his years and that really kind of shakes you to the core in that moment of like oh can they possibly withstand the the might of unicron which mm. is when car hot rod has to step up to the plate the moment where during the final battle where you got the touch came back i was like mm. holy shit like punch the air moment in that without a doubt yeah, absolutely. It's kind of a, a great conclusion to his arc because, like we touched on earlier, that he was directly responsible, or at least partially responsible, for the death of Optimus Prime, and has kind of been carrying this guilt then for the the film. It's only fitting then that Hot Rod ends up facing off with Galvatron. You're right; he manages to wrest the Matrix of Leadership from Galvatron, and it finally opens for him and transforms him into Rodimus Prime. So, despite his failings as a younger man, he's he's redeemed and able to fill the shoes of Optimus Prime as the new Autobot leader. Yeah, it's it's a totally it's a really interesting choice actually because Ultra Magnus is obviously a character who who was in the show prior to the movie, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I was gonna say, I think it kind of says something in terms of the underdogs coming up to win which of course is like a fairly well 
established trope, but you can kind of link it a little bit to the junk, the junkians from the junk planet, which we touched on. And we were kind of like, well, what, what's the purpose of them like speaking TV? Because they're kind of just recycling TV broadcasts. But if you think about it, we've literally then have people made of trash reciting, in inverted commas, trash culture, coming against Orson Welles and destroying him. And it's kind of almost like this on a cultural level, it's like the trash culture is taking down the, in inverted commas, highbrow <coughs> culture and, and laying waste to it. And there's a nice like little meta level there, which is kind of enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, that is, that's an amazing reading of it. I love that. Um, but yeah, I just like the thing of the fact that they got a new character in to basically, in the end, kind of take him on a new journey uh, that the audience could follow, um, rather than the natural kind of successor, which was Ultra Magnus. And, you know, the biggest surprise is obviously that Optimus Prime doesn't come back by the end of the film because, you know, even in, you know, to compare them with the modern films in Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, of course, they do the trick of killing Prime uh, halfway through. Mm. And by the end, he's back from the dead. Like, you know, so even in the, the modern movies, they couldn't, they didn't have the balls to go all out. Mm. Whereas here, you know, there's no, you, know, you don't get Prime back at the end. Yeah, it's like his, his death is early enough that you think, oh, he probably will come back for the end because, yeah. you know, it's just enough time's gone that he might have forgotten and he can swing in and save the day. But yeah, the fact that they don't is a really interesting choice. And maybe it is because they just had, you know, they already had plans in place for season three of the show. But I think having, you know, faith in the, the direction they were taking the story in this movie, and like you say, bringing back so many baddies, but hardly any of the goodies makes the finale really kind of tense because you think, you know, I've been accustomed now to knowing that anyone can go at any mm. time and i was like you know who else is going to bite it in this uh, kind of final showdown you do feel the stakes and like i get mm. we kind of referred earlier to the different cuts like the U the u.s cut because uh which is the theatrical cut of the film was released in august 86 and it ends with no voiceover and just unicron dis dismembered head orbiting cybertron the uk cut came out um a few months later in december 86 and that then has a voiceover saying optimus prime will return and i think they were kind of trying to then placate the weeping children in the theater and being like <laughs> you know um it's worth also noting that apparently um frank miller like the infamous graphic artist had a visit to the uh, the studio while they were making transformers and helped kind of contribute to the ending oh, um, wow. and in, in reply the writing team on transformers gave some uh, feedback and some input into the end of his uh, classic batman the dark knight returns and so i think if you kind of view it through the lens of Frank Miller, who's then famous as a, as a comic artist for his really dark and gritty stories, feeding into that ending. I think, I think there's, there's something in that in terms of the level of maturity that it's kind of asking you to take, you know. Definitely, definitely. I mean, I'd kill to see some, yeah, Frank Miller uh, Transformers, but you can definitely see a bit of, <laughs> bit of him in the, in the darkness of this. But yeah, no, that, that's exactly how mine ended with Unicron's head defeated. Uh, orbiting Cybertron, it, it, it's very, very quickly all wrapped up. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's super tight. And when we talk about it sagging in the middle, like I think that's legitimate, but equally, it is kind of the first time it takes a breath is about 40 minutes in, and then after about 20 minutes, it's back at it again. So it's it's a fairly tight um, narrative in terms of it just super pro uh, propulsive and just keeps on kicking forward. Yeah, no, I've, I, I, I think you're right there. So... We do star ratings on this podcast. We'll uh, go around. We're all on Letterboxd at the end of the day, all of us. I'm Liam Dempsey on there. You can track me down. But uh, Matt, why don't you give us your final thoughts on this film and your star rating, mm. please? 
Uh, I think I'm going to give this a, th a really good three and a half because it's there's so much to enjoy here. Like it, it's all too rare you see a film that is so confident in the story it's telling, with such relentless pacing and genuine stakes. Like you know, fake stakes is something that's afflicted a lot of modern films. I think where all your heroes you know are safe and they're all coming back and everything's going to be undone. Even the biggest example of like the end of Infinity War, which does. Mm give time like literally time like a year before endgame to you know let you sit with the the loss you know you know certain characters are coming back you know certain things are safe whereas here even though it wasn't the the end of the series as i as i first thought it's it's such a big shake-up that it is that rare thing of let's go out with a bang with a theatrical story where we really can just say what were we going to do if we we're going to blow it all up basically and it may have been through the cynical way of we need to make room for more toys, but it still serves the the film itself in that way. Um, I think there's some really well animated action sequences here. Uh, it's great to see, like when I see um, Spike and the other human, they 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 really kind of remind me of the kind of very atypical 80s animated human beings, very kind of like square jawed looking guys. So it very much feels of the piece as well. But then it's elevated with, you know, this this score and those soundtrack tracks. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it's iconic for a reason and I think it's beloved by the fans for a reason. And so I think if I was a bigger fan of the series itself, it would, and especially if I'd seen it at the time, it would have made a real, real big impact. But even now, you know, seeing it, in 2020 with barely any kind of attachment to it it was a real ride and it's not your atypical animated movie and i think for that to come out in the mid 80s is really impressive okay paul what are you thinking well i'm gonna end my programs like i always do some poetry <laughs> and I, I think the best thing to come out of transformers as a whole has been a wonderful poem by lady called Holly McNish. So she did a poem called Megatron. As the real lifetime Transformers, I'm saying Megatron ain't shit. <laughs> Compared to female bodies to prepare to grow and feed a kid and the only thing our body's given for this Optimus of Primes is a pot of fucking stretch mark cream. <laughs> <laughs> to try to hide the signs. Thank you, I love you Emma. <laughs> Inspired <laughs> stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, really you saw her do the whole thing. So I'm not the audience for this film. Like, I've got no connection to Transformers, like, obviously, as we've, we've covered, and I found it very hard to, to follow what was going on in this film. Uh, I didn't enjoy it, and uh, <laughs> um, it was just an onslaught of noise and heavy metal and chaos. And because I didn't care about anybody, it was... <laughs> It really was difficult. I mean, I was trying so hard to like <laughs> latch onto stuff, but I have, I've been, I think I've been fair in that I've contributed some good points to, to the to the discussion. Like Star Star Screen, we can all agree there that that yes. was a good thing. Yes. <laughs> so, so I don't want to shit on this anymore, but like one star from me. Sorry. Worst worst master. Fucking hell. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm so. Oh. Man, right. Well, I tell you what, Tim, I'll, I'll allow you to uh, bring respond. It, bring it home, Tim. Bring it home. <laughs> you know, I, I was going to say, I know objectively it's got its limitations, but after, I feel like, you know, Matt's gone for three, Paul's gone for one. I have to go for the five because, you know, yeah. I think as we've established, it is the apex of Western culture. It is, <laughs> it is Shakespeare for kids. It is the Bible retold with robots. It is... <laughs> 
uh, a piece of epic cultural weight. It is a meditation on death, on refugees, on genocide, on justice. It is um, in my top ten of all time. And oh, I'll give you another little fact, actually, which we didn't get time to touch on. But uh, Nelson Shin, director, um, may not have had many directorial credits to his name, but he, as an animator, is responsible for the lightsaber effects in A New Hope. So there's oh, wow. that. And so it's that's nice, kind of, yeah, yeah, because you know, there's a couple of lightsabers in, uh, in the movie and you might think, oh, it's just a knockoff. But actually, if anyone's got the right to knock it off, Nelson does. So that's yeah, not... I definitely heard the sound effect in there as well. Yeah, it was legit like, sound effect. Yeah. the sound effect just from nicked, Skywalker Sound, I think. Just nicked it. Just nicked it, absolutely. But yeah, no, it's a film I, I love very deeply. And although, yeah, there are moments which are perhaps not amazing objectively like the dancing and some stuff in the in the second act i think for me it's it's just offset by the all, all the things i said before the thematic way the the propulsion um it makes me cry so many times i, w- I was watching it with my kids on um saturday morning and i was just like s- sitting in a puddle there just like <laughs> just uh, letting it all wash over me so yeah it's gonna be a hard five for me yeah hard five um, for context, Tim, can you tell the audience some of the other films that make it into your top ten of all time? Just so there is going to be a certain subsection of the audience, <laughs> uh, I feel, the pools of this world, who might think you sound like an insane person putting this in your top ten of all time. So <laughs> can you tell some of the other films, being that you are a legitimate film journalist, that make it into your top ten to kind of contextualise things a little bit? Yeah, I you know, probably just make me sound like I probably shouldn't be let anywhere near film criticism again after saying that but yeah my top my top 10 um you can follow me on letterbox at fats coleman but like my top 10 at the minute is uh magnolia the exorcist kashimiki's edition back to the future john carpenter's the thing transformers we've touched on shawshank redemption die hard sunrise by fw Murnau, um and aliens slash blue velvet by lynch they're kind of vying for the number 10 so I mean, that's a pretty great top ten. I think, Paul, you'd be down with a lot of those choices, yeah. wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, that's some absolute classics. Though, really. <laughs> and one of the yeah, classics yeah. This is no is crazy man we're talking about here. <laughs> this is no crazy man. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. So okay. I think we, we could be, equally be valid in our in our face. This is probably the most divisive film that we've ever had on well, Spotlight. Uh, at yeah, the yeah possibly, one, three, possibly. five. So well, I could take, I could take pride in it. Like health, healthy debate about cinema is what we need. Yes, exactly. And I'm going to bring it home, going slap bang in the middle with three stars. I I enjoyed this film. Um, You know, I have seen it once before, I think. And I I do think it's impressive uh, in a lot of ways. I think a lot of the animation feels really big and widescreen in this. It looks gorgeous on the uh, Blu-ray. I think there's no getting away from the fact that it's essentially an extended toy advert. Um, You know, that's just the facts of the situation. And I kind of think it's kind of weird because I kind of feel all the really interesting, heavy stuff that's in there is almost by accident rather than design but mm. there's no denying it is there and like you know as a as a film now it kind of feels weirdly ballsy for a kind of corporate product you know fucking killing off main characters left right and center it's insanely brutal um there is some really funny stuff in there with star scream obviously you've got the real 
kind of needle drops of some of the uh, songs in there, which are really cool. It's really lean and mean. It doesn't outstay its welcome. I do think the midsection sags a little bit, but you know, I, I enjoyed it. I do like these characters. I do like this world. Um, Optus Prime is, is a legend, obviously, and Peter Cullen is just absolutely incredible as the voice of Prime. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, our man Nimoy, he does a, he does a good job as well as Galvatron. Uh, you know, he, he does a good villainous voice uh, in that role. And so, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed watching the film. You know, I think it's undeniably impressive in some aspects. It's not going to be an absolute all-timer for me, um, but I don't think any of the Transformers films would probably end up being all-timers for me, even though I do enjoy that world and do hope they make a sort of uh, full CGI kind of Transformers movie inspired by those sequences on Cybertron and Bumblebee that maybe harkens closer uh, to the kind of the ballsy nature of this kind of film. But yeah, three stars uh, for me. Definitely, definitely enjoyed it. Definitely better than the Page Master. So we have completed our visit to Cybertron. Tim, thank you so much for bringing this film uh, to us. It's been a really inspired choice. And, uh, you know, there is absolutely no denying uh, that you fought your corner really well. This is, I felt like I've been sitting yeah, been in, in mm-hmm. the lecture hall yeah. getting a full a dissertation on Transformers the movie. Uh, so that's been <laughs> oh, really great, mate. Thanks for having me on, man. Like normally, you know, if I try and like launch into a defense of a Transformers, there's a very limited number of people who would endure it. So thank you for <laughs> <laughs> yeah. thank you for. Well, I, I've got to stay behind after class, I presume. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's all good. It's all good. Teacher wants a word of you, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, where can we find you online? Uh, yeah, so online, um, I'm on Twitter fairly regularly at Fats Coleman, F A T S C O L E M A N. Same on Letterbox, or you know, in these COVID times, uh, support film magazines, buy title film, or I have a, a, my own uh, genre site as well, MovingPicturesFilmClub.com, where if you are into horror movies and other genre-y things, uh, come and check it out. And there's reviews, interviews, and that kind of stuff there. Great stuff. That's great. I would check that out. I'm now into my horror and. Uh genre so i'll be bookmarking that one. Oh, good man thank you awesome yeah i mean i always say support film magazines 100 percent. you know i'm a big fan of total film big fan of empire as well and you know i think just yeah go out and buy copies of them and keep film magazines and film journalism going uh during this difficult time for them because you know we we would miss them if they were gone 100 percent yeah um, so yeah awesome. it's been great you find a spotlight at spotlight pod on twitter facebook and instagram uh you can leave us a five star review that's right as good as transformers the movie we are five stars you can leave us with uh, you feel free to write a review with as much passion as tim has shown tonight for transformers the movie about spotlight because that really helps i feel if someone read a review like that they'd be subscribing straight away. So definitely get on that. We will be back with another episode of Spotlight, focusing on some aspect of the Star Trek universe as soon as we possibly can. But until then, you've got the touch, I've got the touch. <laughs> Let's call the whole thing off. You got the touch!